right, so I shudder here during basketball season to, to bring up my personal story, um, but here we go. So if anybody, you're mad at me when I'm done, so be it. But uh, some of you will just pity me, I think. All right. So I grew up in the 60s. So for some of you doing the calculations, yes, that I am 61 now, actually. So I grew up in the 60s, and I was one of two state fans I knew. Two. Everybody loved Carolina. Everybody loved Carolina. These were the days of Dick Grubar, Charlie Scott, Eddie Fogler, Larry Miller. You know, everybody loved Larry Miller's hair. Remember? I mean, some of you are too old. Brett and I, you know, we, we would certainly be jealous of it now. I mean, I mean he had this, just this beautiful hair. All the young girls loved him. I have to tell you that my wife admitted one day to me that um, she loved him when she was uh, a teenager. Um, fortunately, we were already married, so it didn't really, you know, I couldn't do anything about that. So it was okay. But, but you know, the, the, the hurt that I had being a state fan and being the only two, one of two that I knew was, was really quite profound because as children are wont to be, there was a lot of bad words that were spoken to one another. Um, I was told dozens of times, if you can't go to college, go to state. So I did. Um, and, um, you know, frankly, I hated Carolina. I absolutely hated Carolina. I, uh, I wanted them to lose, okay? I mean, I, I was so envious of them that, that all I wanted to do was for them to lose. In 1968, you'll recall, they played against UCLA in the national finals. Who did I pull for? Go Bruins, all right? Now, you think, that's silly, but you know, I was suffering so much that I wanted them to suffer. And that's what envy is. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We've been talking about these respectable sins. And, you know, we've, we've talked about a bunch of them, ungodliness, selfishness, pessimism, unthankfulness. But we really have saved the best one for last, okay? This one's great, okay? There's just, there's so much in here. It's amazing. And the, the really incredible thing is that not only do believers uh, sort of not want to be accused of envy, but even non-believers don't want to be accused of envy. I mean, it's bad. Um, Envy is the least respectable of the respectable sins, all right? And there was this guy who wrote a book titled Envy, all right? And in this book, he, he's a non-believer, all right? So he said, giving into sloth and laziness is actually rather pleasant. Giving into the loss of temper, losing one's temper, entails a release that is not without its small delights. Lust, greed, and pride bring quite a bit of pleasure for quite a long time. Only envy is absolutely no fun at all, draining all joy from you from its very first moment. We've all felt envy's desperate, deep, soul-destroying, lacerating stabs. You know, when you think about these sins, we've talked about it. We've talked about non-believers hardly know what ungodliness is. Non-believers uh, may be bothered a little bit if you tell them they're selfish, but they probably don't. Pessimism is a trait that's admired among many non-believers, right? And unthankfulness, I've often wondered, everybody says that everybody in our culture should be thankful, and we're going to talk a lot about thankfulness at the end of the sermon. Who are they supposed to be thankful to? But again, envy. Man, nobody wants to be accused of envy. And you don't have to read far into the Bible to see the effects and devastation of envy. In Genesis 3, the serpent uses envy to seduce Eve about the forbidden fruit. 
And the result is the curse upon Adam and Eve and upon all mankind. The next chapter, Cain envies Abel's offering to the Lord. So what does he do? He murders him. And you don't have to look very broadly or deeply into our society to see the effects of envy. Whether it's in politics, school, social media, advertising, the workplace, really any place where you see competition and people trying to get ahead, you're going to see envy. We see it everywhere, and we see that the result is devastation and destruction of the individual and of those who are around him or her. And we have all seen it happen over and over again. So today we're going to deep dive into envy. We're going to look a little bit more about what it is. Then we're going to think about why I worry about envy. And uh, if you haven't already thought maybe we should, then uh, I already missed my chance. But, you know, why do we deal with envy? And then how do we deal with envy? Um, so what is envy? <clears throat> is it the same as jealousy or covetousness? All right. Is it different? I've been asking around the last week or so. Some of you might have realized in retrospect that uh, I ask you this and you might be thinking, oh my, he might use my answer in the sermon. But the interesting thing is um, when I talk to people mainly about envy and jealousy, sorry, jealousy, I didn't really talk much about covetousness. We don't use that term very much. But my limited survey is that many people use envy and jealousy almost interchangeably. Um, that, that it's not, uh, that, that they'll say, well, I'm envious of this or I'm jealous of this. And, and I, you know, I'm not sure if they really are as envious of that as they think personally, certainly after I give you my definition of envy. Um, and I've looked through a lot of secular resources in the last couple, uh, last couple of months, and more modern ones do, in fact, tend to lessen this difference between envy and jealousy. They, they do almost become synonymous, and there are writings where you'll see that they are synonymous. But if you go back 25 to 50 years, there's a definite difference between the connotations of envy and jealousy. You know, one of the seven deadly sins is envy. It's not jealousy. It's envy. Now, biblically... There are two Hebrew words and three Greek words that are used almost interchangeably um, and may be translated as envy or jealousy or ardor or zeal. Um, and the biblical translators of the last few hundred years have used context to help them choose what English word they want to use in that place. So sometimes when you're reading your Bible, you might get to another translation and where you saw envy, you'll see jealousy. And so you might think maybe they're the same thing. And indeed, perhaps you do. There are even times when jealousy is good. In scripture, right? You can be uh, the zeal of the Lord of the host or the zealots, the zealot, sorry, the jealousy of the Lord or host will accomplish this is said over and over again. One may be jealous for the glory of the Lord. Paul is zealous or even jealous for the peop- for the good of God's people. But most of the time, the Greek and Hebrew words don't reflect anything positive in scripture. And so when we think about the words that are then translated in envy and, and jealousy, what, what's the connotation that's different between the two? And again, it might be lessening some in modern usage, but I still think it's a good thing to consider. The best definition of envy I found was, envy as a basic category of human behavior is a term for the jealous and hostile feelings and actions of one person toward another because the other has objects of value, property, qualities, or other advantages that seem to be desirable. It is motivated by the sense of being disadvantaged as compared to the other. And stronger than the desire to have the goods and so forth is resentment. That is the desire that the other should not have them. And it's this emotional response. It's this resentment that really makes the difference, I think, between envy 
and jealousy and envy and even covetousness. And, and I think that's why this is a, one of the seven deadly sins. I mean, this, this, is, this, is, this really, as you'll hear me talk through the rest of the thing in my history of being a state fan, this really can affect your life, okay? And, and so when you compare jealousy and envy, one author noted, jealousy makes us fear to lose what we possess. Envy creates sorrow that others have what we don't have. Comparing covetousness and envy. Covetousness is wanting something you don't have. And likely somebody else does. But envy is often not satisfied unless another is hurt. And that does describe my youth. This emotional side is what I want us to be thinking about. The sorrow that others have something we don't have, often coupled with a resentment that is not satisfied until the other one is hurt. This is the unique and defining aspect of envy. It's also the part that's the most devastating and destructive. It's the most corrupting. It really destroys one ability to see the word rational, see the world rationally. And so now you might disagree, and you say there's no difference in the way you use the words envy and jealousy, and that's fine. But for the rest of the day, how about going with me here and just remembering this emotional aspect? Recognize this emotional aspect, the sorrow and resentment that's sometimes attached to this desire to have something that someone else has and whether you call that envy or jealousy is okay. But again, this emotional aspect. So as we turn to our first passage today in Numbers and ask ourselves, why should we deal with envy? We see this story. The events in this story now occur during the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. God has brought them out of Egypt. You all know this story. They have seen the power of God. They have seen the plagues that afflicted the Egyptians and left them untouched. You have seen the gifts of gold and precious jewels the Egyptian populace gave them as they exited the country. The salvation of Israel and the destruction of Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea, they've seen all this, the leading of the cloud by day and the fire by night, the provision of manna every day for them to eat. How could any of them, how could any of them doubt the power and goodness of God? But some of them have become tired of manna. They become tired of only have what God has provided. So they begin to weep. And then they say, verse 5, We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And they begin to make demands. Who will give us meat? Now, before we talk more about envy, I want to tell you the end of the story here. Many of you probably know this. They want meat? They'll get meat. All right? We didn't read on. God tells Moses to tell them, you shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, not ten days, not twenty days, but a whole month. Until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So flocks of quails descend on the Israelites. And I mean flocks of quails. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side. All around the camp and two cubits, that's three feet, deep. That's a lot of quail. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers. Do you know what a homer is? It's eleven bushels. The least the person got was a hundred and ten bushels of quail. All right? Holy cow. They spread them for themselves all around the camp. The story ends with God destroying many of those who were complaining. Some, it is said, while they had the meat in their mouth. 
So that's envy. All right? Why deal with it? Well, one could simply answer it's sin, and that would be enough of a good reason. But as we said, it's one of the seven deadly sins, so there's something more going on. So let's think about what's going on here. First, envy can suck the joy right out of your life. It poisons your ability to enjoy the life you have. And that's what was happening to some of the Israelites, as we just saw. You know, I suspect there has never been a community of people in the history of the world who knew better or more objectively that God was with them than the Israelites during the Exodus. Yet their envy made them want to go back to Egypt. Envy makes you yearn for the good old days of your life or of someone else's life. And you're dissatisfied and hate your present life. Envy makes you see others around you who are better or have better lives, or at least you think they're better and they have better lives, and you hate it and you hate them. Envy makes everything you have and are seem not good enough. You will always be finding fault. You're always critical of yourself, of others, of your circumstances, of Carolina fans. Envy hampers the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You know the fruit of the Spirit, those characteristics that are supposed to be growing in all of us who are believers. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you're envious, you simply cannot display these. It's just impossible. It sucks the joy right out of your life and the fruits of the Spirit just vanish. Second, envy makes you irrational. It makes you irrational. Listen again. We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Really? They were eating cucumbers, melons, leeks, and onions and garlic and all this great stuff? That's nonsense. They were slaves. They were barely getting enough food to exist. But that's what envy does. When we envy people or their situations or our past or whatever, we begin to think up all sorts of stories. We imagine all kinds of things. We ruminate on it. We dream about it. And suddenly, we become irrational. We may even admit that it's irrational. But we don't care. The emotion of the envy is so strong that we don't care. I'm going to tell you, I literally remember Literally remember in 1968 thinking, this is irrational. Why would I pull for UCLA against Carolina? This is irrational. But the pain was too big. It hurt too much. I couldn't do it. And that's what envy does. It makes you irrational. Third, envy destroys community. It's hard to be around people who tend to envy. I'm sure my, my uh, classmates when I was young didn't like me much for the way I was at times. They're often uh, unhappy people, and they're often always unhappy. Remember that envy sucks the joy out of our lives and from their life and from the lives of the people around them. Such people are often not very easy to be around. And more than that, though, envy destroys community because the very thing that should bring us joy and solace brings on envy or is resented. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul, in comparing the body of Christ, that's the church, to the human body, says, and if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In Romans 12, 15, he admonishes the Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When others in our community are, are blessed or are rejoicing or are honored, do we rejoice with them? But, or sometimes does envy come up? And when it does, there's no rejoicing with another person. There's no uh, pleasure in others being blessed when we're envious. There's just joylessness and resentment. 
And I will tell you, ironically, just last night, Todd and I were sharing a meal uh, at the Dobins. Thank you very much, wherever they are. That was great. And um, he was trying to be sympathetic. He said, I really hate that state lost. I felt sorry for you and all your fans. And for a fleeting moment, I mean, I tell you, for a fleeting moment, my reaction was, I don't want your sympathy. I want you to lose. Right? Now, I I promise it was a fleeting moment. I promise it was. Now, just think about that for a minute, though. Think about Todd and I have worked together for years. We're in this community together, and that's what Envy can do. And so on the way home, uh, I laughed about it. And I did. I truly laughed about it. And, And it was okay, Todd. I appreciated it. Okay? But there was this fleeting moment. So envy destroys community. And fourth, and perhaps most dangerously, envy hides itself so we won't deal with it. You don't always recognize it because it tends to hide. Now, why does it hide? Well, remember I told you that believers and non-believers shudder to think about being envious or being accused of envy. Why is that? It's because it's humiliating. It brings shame. And shame always hides. And shame always destroys. Envy brings shame, so it hides. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to admit it. We don't want to be accused of it. And I tell you, I've told you a ridiculous case of envy today about something that really doesn't matter. I'm not telling you about the envy I have about things that matter because that hurts too much. That's too deep. That's too close. It hides. It's too humiliating. So we've said that maybe we should deal with envy because it sucks the joy right out of our lives, because it causes us to be irrational, because it destroys community, and because it brings shame. But there's another good reason why we should deal with envy. And this one's actually positive. If we deal with envy in our lives, we will better understand our own hearts. There's something good here. You will better understand what makes you tick, what you really think is important, what gives you meaning. And, as usual... We get around to idolatry. Seems like every time I preach, I come to idolatry. The root of all our problems seems it's idolatry. Idolatry, that tendency we have to worship something in the creation and not the creator. That tendency we have to put our meaning on someone, something, some task, some job, not on God. That thing which if we just had it, we would be happy and everything would be good. That idolatry is revealed in our envy. You've heard me say many times that if you want to find your idol, what you think is more important than God himself, then consider what you are most fearful of losing. Or consider what it is that makes you angry to consider losing. I have a corollary now. If you want to find your idol, consider what it is that you envy in others. You will probably find that this is the thing that you think you need to have meaning you'll probably find this is the thing that you think you need to be good at in order to decide that you're not a failure. Envy is not just a sin. It's one of the seven deadly sins. It's devastating. It destroys. It points out. Uh, it, sorry, it's devastating. It's destroy, it destroys. It creates irrationality. But it does point out the idolatry in our hearts. So how do we deal with it? We deal with envy by looking to God because the answer to envy is contentment and the route to contentment is thankfulness. 
There are many passages in Scripture that tell us either to be content or tell us the blessings of contentment. Ecclesiastes 5.18. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun. Princess, be content. During the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Luke 3.14. Some soldiers were questioning Jesus, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Timothy 1 Timothy 6, but godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Tim Keller notes something about contentment that I have to say I never thought about. He says contentment isn't just offered by God, it's commanded. Never thought about that. How can he say that? Well, recall the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we are commanded not to covet. We're commanded not to envy. Well, what's the positive side of that? The positive side is that we're commanded to be content. Keller's point is this, if contentment is a command and not an offer, then it must be available to all of us. So there are all these blessings of contentment. There's this command to be content. The question is, how do we get it? And to try to understand that, we turn now to our passage from Philippians. Paul says in verse 11 that he has learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And in verse 12, he talks about the secret. Contentment, Paul says, is learned, and it's a secret. Now, secret doesn't mean that it's hidden and only revealed to a select few. Secret means it's not obvious. So how is it learned, and how is the secret revealed? And he tells us remarkably it is learned and revealed, both in want and in plenty. How counterintuitive is that? It would be the prevailing wisdom not only of our time, but really of all human existence, of all time, that if we just had enough of something, money, food, things, relationships, then we would be happy and content. By extension, we would not envy. So it makes some sense that those who are in want, those who have less, should need to learn to just be content and not envy. That, that makes make sense. But Paul says he learned the secret of contentment in want and in plenty. How can both of these be true? How is it that both want and plenty could help us learn the secret of contentment? It is because both want and plenty reveal the conditions of our hearts goes something like this. If you have needs and wants, if you want something really badly that you don't have, and you dream about it, and you make an idol of it, and you envy those who have it, and you realize you'll never get it, the result will be despair, and the condition of your heart, your idolatry, will be revealed. But if you have something, or a lot of something, that you always dreamed of having and you thought, if I get that, I'll just be content. And then you learn that others, oh my gosh, have more of it. And so I envy them and, and oh my goodness, I've got it all. I've reached my dream and I'm not content. Then you will despair and the condition of your heart, your idolatry will be revealed. So both want and plenty reveal the condition of our hearts. 
and the secrets in the next verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When we despair that we will never get what we want and be content, or when we despair because we have gotten everything we want and we are not content, the answer to that despair is that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And what things do we need to do to answer that despair, to become content and to deal with envy? We first have to unmask the desires for what they are. We have to admit that we've been making idols. We have to reveal that envy that brings us shame and likes to hide. We have to reveal it to ourselves and sometimes to others. And as we do so, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. Those of us who are believers are forgiven in Christ. We are forgiven for having those wrong desires. We are forgiven for our idolatry. We are forgiven for being full of envy. These are all forgiven, and these need not control us anymore. And we have to respond with thankfulness. The end of this sermon is going to sound a lot like last week. As Todd was preaching last week, I was going, don't say so much about thankfulness. But it's actually good, because it'll be a, a good review. And it makes sense that, that the, the solution to envy has got to do with thankfulness. Because if you think about it, envy is kind of unthankfulness on steroids. Right? It's like a super case of unthankfulness. Todd encouraged us last week to practice thankfulness daily, to write down things that you're thankful for. And if you don't like to write, then voice all the things that you're thankful for, perhaps to someone to whom you are thankful. He reminded us to pray uh, acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And he encouraged us to give thanks before meals. I want to expand on one of these a little bit further, and that's the writing one. And he said that you should journal, and that's true. And let me give you a little research on that. Researchers at at Duke have been doing some work on what is called physician burnout. So what's burnout? Burnout is a state of chronic stress that leads to ineffectiveness and a loss of self-worth, cynicism and detachment, and physical and emotional exhaustion. Hmm. I wonder if there's a little envy in there somewhere. It's, very, it's, it's actually more common in physicians than you might imagine. It's a serious problem. These researchers did an interesting thing. They instructed a group of physicians to write down every evening within two hours of bed three things that they were thankful for. And they couldn't just list them. They actually had to, to write out the details. They really had to journal. I mean, they had to say, I'm thankful for this, and this is what happened, and it's because of this, and so on and so on. They had to write down how the event made them feel. And the results were absolutely stunning. The effect on mood that the researchers noted six months later, after two weeks of writing down about thankfulness, they did not have to continue to do this. All they had to do was do it for two weeks. The improvement on mood six months later was the equivalent of of that scene with the medical treatment of depression. That's pretty amazing. And one of the amazing things to me, as I said at the beginning of the service, is that that simply being thankful for something is so helpful. I mean, we have the chance to be thankful for something and thankful to someone. And how much more profound is that? So my example of envy is kind of silly, I know, really in the great scheme of things. Getting your meaning from the success or not of an athletic program is silly. Probably worse than silly. And no, I don't want them to lose. Most of the time. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want them to lose. 
But when we think about our societal problems of poverty, racism, sexual addiction, chemical addiction, unbalanced political power, on and on and on, all these problems, being envious about athletics seems pretty trivial. But as we think about those issues of poverty, racism, addiction, power, might it be that at the heart of some of these is envy? What in your life do you envy that you will not admit to yourself or to others? Envy sucks joy out of our lives. It makes us irrational. It destroys community. It reveals the idols of our heart. Because of the power of Christ, we can, in fact, have hope. We can deal with the envy that is in us. We can admit our envy because of the gospel. We are acceptable to God on the basis of the work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and nothing else. And as we work through the envy and remind ourselves of the gospel, we should remind ourselves that we're not as bad as we might imagine, but we are far more loved than we could ever dream. We are indeed forgiven. And it's in that power that we respond with and work on thankfulness. And when we do, the envy and idolatry will vanish. We will be free to be joyful. We become rational again. Community is restored. And in all of that, God is glorified. Amen.